Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Michelle Goldberg. I'm Ross Douthat. I'm David Leonhardt. And this is The Argument. This week, who is winning the fight over the border wall? What is the thing that I think makes this country, God, for lack of a better word, great? It's immigration. Then, powerful women in politics. The news is suddenly full of them, and they're drawing lots of attention, both good and bad. Is America panicked by female leaders? I think there are all kinds of ways for female politicians to sort of turn gender dynamics to their advantage. And of course, a recommendation. One of the casualties of this moment in politics is that I'm reading a lot less fiction. The partial government shutdown is now one of the longest in history, and it's not clear when or how it's going to end. I'm very proud of doing what I'm doing. I don't call it a shutdown. I call it doing what you have to do for the benefit and for the safety of our country. President Trump has doubled down on his demand for a border wall, giving his first televised primetime speech from the Oval Office this week. Democrats have said they will accept absolutely no bill to reopen the government so long as it includes money for a wall. We recognize on the Democratic side that we really cannot resolve this until we open up government. So who's winning this political fight? Michelle, what do you think? Well, I think I mean, I think it's obvious that so far the Democrats are winning because Trump brilliantly went on television and said, I am going to be the one who's responsible for shutting down the government because this bill that now the Senate refuses to consider is one that a couple of weeks ago they passed. And so the outlines of a deal are extremely obvious before Donald Trump you know, listened to too much talk radio and through a tantrum and decided to jettison the whole process. The effects of the shutdown, I think, are starting to bite for a lot of people. For a lot of people, they're genuinely devastating. I mean, I think that, you know, Democrats are inclined to to panic and Democrats are inclined to, you know, really worry about being blamed for things in part because they are the party of government and the party that claims that they can be responsible stewards of government in a way that the Republicans simply don't. And so, you know, I think they really want to reopen the government. But right now, I mean, the polling shows it. And I think that just the fact that you're starting to see Republicans defecting to the Democratic side in some of these votes shows it. To me, the whole the whole situation has just served to underscore how vulnerable Trump is, that he's got an approval rating of 40 percent. He just is coming out of a midterms where Republicans got thumped and Republicans are supposed to do better in the midterms because younger people and non-white people don't vote at the same high rates as they do in presidential elections. And now he's basically committing this unforced error of shutting down the government and taking credit for it and welcoming chaos in a way that's not normally good for a politician. I do think there are some risks here for Democrats that we'll get to. But on the whole, to me, there just doesn't seem to be a lot of a plan here on behalf of Republicans. And I don't really see how it ends well for them. I'm curious, Ross, whether you see kind of a potential silver lining here for Republicans or a dark lining for Democrats that we're not seeing. 
No, not really. I mean, the rule is historically that Republicans lose shutdown fights in part, I think, for the reasons Michelle suggested, that they are seen as the party of skepticism towards government. And therefore, if you have a situation where the two parties go all the way to actually shutting down the government, the more government skeptical party is going to get blamed. In this case, in theory, the presidency is supposed to help win a government shutdown fight. You know, Bill Clinton and Barack Obama both sort of effectively use the bully pulpit against their Republican opponents to sort of win politically in those shutdown debates. But Trump doesn't use the bully pulpit effectively. And he doesn't have – basically, he doesn't have a way to shift from demagogy to sort of technocratic reassurance. And that is, that's what you'd have to do to win the shutdown fight. You would need Trump or a Republican president to basically say, look, the Democrats are shutting down the government because they don't want to spend a little bit more money on more of the border fencing that we already have. And I'm offering a compromise deal where we spend a bunch more money on humanitarian issues around the border. And this is reasonable. And why won't the Democrats go for it? You know, you you could you could imagine him doing that, but the whole Trump modus operandi in the border has been to claim that yeah, to, to sort of speak the language of a national security emergency, a crime emergency, and so on. And I don't think people see that kind of emergency reflected in reality. So I don't think the argument works. I don't think he can downshift to the winning argument that one might have in this scenario. Let me ask this broader question. I mean, so far we're talking about the shutdown as shutdown. But I think the way a lot of Americans are hearing it as a, is as a fight over immigration. Whether they support Trump or don't, they hear it as Trump is trying to keep out illegal immigrants. And this, to me, is the one risk and downside for the Democrats of this, which is I think an argument about illegal immigration is not really the argument the Democrats want to be having. I, I, so far, I think they're handling the shutdown well, but I don't think they should be marinating in this topic. I think they should realize that a fight about illegal immigration is not one of the best um, is not one of the best fights for them, and that most of America is not as liberal on immigration as Democrats are. You look at the polling and you specifically see that the kind of swing voters, white working class voters who came back to the Democrats in the midterms, are pretty hawkish on immigration. And so to me, the one risk here is this is still a fight about a subject that is Trump friendly, which for all his craziness is why I think he keeps bringing up immigration. Do you guys agree with that? You know, so I guess I could worry that there are suckers out there who are going to fall for Trump's rhetoric, and, and maybe there are. But I also think it's the Democrats' job and, frankly, the media's job to just point out that he's lying, right? I mean, he's lying about where most undocumented immigrants come from, how they get here, what the crisis constitutes, you know, when he talks about all of these people who are at, you know, all of these Central American migrants and families who are coming to the border and where there is a genuine humanitarian crisis, those people aren't, you know, a fence is going to not do anything because they're showing up at ports of entry and surrendering. You know, most undocumented immigrants come here legally and overstay their visas. So I think it's incumbent on all of us to make clear that even if your concern is undocumented immigration, 
this is still a made-up solution that none of the experts in the field really see as an urgent priority. That's fair. I mean, look, he is lying about it. It's, it's not, there aren't hordes of people coming over the border. I guess I still do think that there is a larger issue here. And I mean, Michelle, do you disagree with me that, that the Democratic Party has a position on immigration that's different from a large number of Americans, probably the bulk of Americans? Um, I don't know. And I think I don't know that the Democratic Party has a unified position on immigration. I mean, if you look at what just happened in the most recent midterms, Republicans tried to make it a referendum on immigration and the wall and the threat of, you know, kind of Central American gangs. And they were really decisively repudiated. All the polls show that there is more support for immigration as, you know, kind of positive social force than there's been in a long time. And in part, that's because immigration restrictionism is associated with Donald Trump. It's not like Democrats are out there calling for open borders. Ross, you've written a lot about this. And I know your view is that the the country would be better off with less immigration. I mean, first of all, how do you think about the politics of this? Do, do you think there are any risks here for Democrats? I mean, to, I don't think the country would be necessarily better off with less immigration. I think the country would be better off with about the current level of immigration it has now and a lower rate of low-skilled immigration of the kind that tends to come across the U.S. border from Mexico and come of people coming up from Latin America. And I think that there is a sense in which the Democrats have ended up sort of moving and been pushed by Trump himself into a position that... I think if they were in charge of making policy right now would be kind of politically untenable, right? Which is, you know, Democrats have moved well to the left of where they were 10 or 15 years ago on immigration. You have a strong resistance among a lot of Democrats to any kind of enforcement mechanism on immigration. And you have a, a sort of a kind of deep uncertainty about what the Democratic immigration vision actually is, right? I mean, I, I think when Republicans accuse Democrats of being for open borders, that's unfair in a sense. No Democratic politician is calling for open borders. But it's true that Democrats, you saw this in the last campaign with Hillary and, and Bernie, they have trouble articulating any situation in which they would want to stringently enforce immigration law. And all of that is a political vulnerability. But where I totally agree with Michelle is that as long as Donald Trump is president, the Republicans aren't going to exploit that political vulnerability because Trump is sort of rampaging around, sending troops to the border one minute and, you know, shutting down the government over a wall the next minute in ways that push the median voter in the opposite direction. To, you know, most Americans sort of carry two ideas in their head at the same time. We should have a enforced border and relatively limited immigration and we should be a country that's really welcoming to immigrants and there should be a path to citizenship for people already here. And having those two ideas in your head at the same time means that if Donald Trump is president, you're going to look at him and say, oh, that's, you know, that's a little bit <laughs> too xenophobic. I'm going to swing in a more pro-immigration direction. To me, the open border accusation is a lie. But but as Ross was getting at, I think there's a kernel of truth in the Republican criticism, which is I don't think most Democrats are actually in favor of deporting anyone who gets here illegally unless they commit a crime, right? And I think one of the reasons... A serious, Demo a serious crime. A serious crime. And so I think one of the reasons 
Democrats get tied up on this is they know that's a really hard position to have, which is basically if you make it into this country illegally, you can stay. But I do think that's basically the position of most Democrats on immigration. Which is, I think, a, both a bad position on the merits, but also if it were the operationalized policy agenda of the Democrats would be a big political problem. So I think that, you know, to me, well, first of all, I think that, you know, the position that you should prioritize the deportation of people who commit serious crimes is an entirely legitimate one, um, you know, particularly given that we have limited resources. I knew th- I think that there is maybe a deeper emotional problem, which is that immigration, I do tend to think of it, to be honest, as something almost sacred, right? Like when I think about what is it that I love about this country? What is it that I, you know, this country for all its flaws and for all its faults and for all of, you know, its sins? What is the thing that I think makes this country, um, God, for lack of a better word, great? It's it's immigration. You know, it's I'm extremely sentimental about, you know, the poem on the Statue of Liberty um, and not just because that's how, you know, my own people and my husband's people got here. That's the thing we do better historically than anyone else is integrate people, find the kind of people who are striving for a better life all over the world, who go through extraordinary hardships to get here and contribute in almost all cases so much more, I shouldn't say almost all, but in most cases so much more than they take. And so I think, you know, so that 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 sort of fundamental orientation, I think, makes you want to be as welcoming as possible. Right. Like when I see someone who walks 3,000 miles from their violence-stricken country with their infant in their arms, my first response is, is, like, that is the sort of person that you want to build your... That's the sort of person you want in your country, right? Those are the sort of people that are going to be the foundation of a country that could, if America is ever going to be a great country again. And so I understand that you have to combine that with rules and regulations. And, you know, I wish we could take everyone, but we can't. But there's a deeper difference, which is that is immigration foundational to what makes this country exceptional? Or does immigration threaten to dilute what makes this country exceptional? I like it when super tough Michelle Goldberg gets patriotic and sentimental. We don't (laughs) don't hear that too often. And so it sounds like we agree the Democrats are winning the fight so far. We have some disagreements about immigration policy. And my own prediction is that Trump in some way will try to invent a reality that both allows him to declare victory and then allows him to come back and say, we still really need the wall, which seems quite important to Trump's whole brand of politics. Okay, we're going to take a break now. When we come back, we're going to talk about women in politics. Drexel University infuses academics with the power of real experience. Through Drexel's renowned cooperative education program, students are empowered to test drive future careers and discover the perfect profession before graduation. By embracing experiential education, this Philadelphia institution has created a practical yet transformative academic model that inspires intellectual exploration and yields undeniable results. More at drexel.edu. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. And the very first place that you can get the newest episodes of our podcast 
It's a full day and a half before they appear anywhere else online is the New York Times audio app. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, plus This American Life shorts, which are handpicked stories for when you want something, you know, short. That's only at the New York Times audio app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. The beginning of 2019 has looked promising for women in politics. Nancy Pelosi, of course, is the Speaker of the House again. Nancy Pelosi, I extend to you this gavel. Congress now has more women than it's ever had before. Over 100 women members of Congress, the largest number in history. Elizabeth Warren has announced her run for the presidency, and several other female candidates may follow suit. This is definitely progress, but it sure does seem like female politicians face a different level of scrutiny than male politicians do. Whether it's Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez having to talk about her clothing and her dancing. They are obsessed. Oh my God, she's dancing. She is dancing. Or Elizabeth Warren having to talk about whether she's likable. Or Rashida Tlaib, a new congresswoman, having to talk about her use of profanity. Democratic congresswoman Rashida Tlaib is raising eyebrows with a profane remark about President Trump. So today we want to ask a question. Is America panicked by women in power? Michelle, what do you think? I mean, I think obviously, although there's also clearly a huge part of America that is really excited by female leaders, you know, and particularly after the devastation of the 2016 election, almost see something redemptive in the rise of this new class of powerful female politicians. But I do think, I mean, you know, to take Elizabeth Warren particularly and I'm going to have to say this again and again, but full disclosure, my husband has been doing work for Elizabeth Warren. I can remember in 2016 how many people said, well, you know, I don't like Hillary Clinton and I, you know, she, she seems so shrill and phony and angry, but of course I'm ready to vote for a woman. You know, I would vote for Elizabeth Warren in a heartbeat. And lo and behold, to, you know, a couple of years later, well, you know, I just don't love, there's just something about that Elizabeth Warren that I don't like. But, you know, maybe I would vote for, I don't know, Amy Klobuchar or Kamala Harris or, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez when she's finally old enough to run for president. And there's a huge amount of social science research to back up the fact that women, when they're seeking powerful positions, are seen as dishonest, are seen as morally suspect. So you see that refracted again and again. And I think you see it refracted in different ways for different candidates, you know, depending on both ideological concerns, you know, age concerns, identity, right? The sort of sexist treatment of Elizabeth Warren is very different than the sexist treatment of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who I think provokes a huge amount of anxiety and obsession and fascination in a lot of conservative men because they both hate her and desire her. Michelle, can you also talk about Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib and your view about the whole controversy over her curse word? So, honestly, I watched that thing unfold with a sense of, like, open-mouthed astonishment. Like, I literally could not believe that this was a thing. You know, both that kind of Republicans were going to have the, like, audacity to pretend that they were offended by curse words, that, you know, sort of mainstream pundits were going to cluck about civility. I mean, I just, I was watching it thinking, like, I, I actually cannot believe 
that this is happening. And so I wasn't going to write about it at first because I was like, this is so stupid. We just need to let it blow over. But I actually think that it's these kind of stupid little teapot tempests are likely to keep happening over and over again. So it's worth delving into now. So I agree with you about so much of this, right? I'm extremely nervous about the level of sexism among Americans and whether they're willing to vote for a woman. But you lose me a little bit with the Talib case. So I agree that cluck clucking about civility. And again, what she said is that, that, that the new Congress is going to come to Washington and impeach Donald Trump. But they, she didn't say that. She said Mother F instead of Donald Trump. And all the clucking about civility, that's all silly, right? I actually, in the, a lot of the criticism of her, I don't see sexism. So I think that if a male Democratic member of Congress did that, everyone would be talking about this. And that's because I think she did a huge favor to Trump and the Republicans. I think that's exactly the opposite of the message that Nancy Pelosi is trying to send. She's not saying we're just going to go in there and do it. She's saying we're going to be cautious about it. She doesn't want the attention on them. She wants the attention on Trump. And so I thought that was strategically a profoundly unwise wise thing for her to do. And while there was some sexist criticism of it, to me, the main criticism is just that was like a gift to Trump. Do you disagree? I mean, did you think it was a gift to Trump when Brad Sherman on Thursday introduced articles of impeachment into the new Congress, right? I mean, it's not a secret that there are members of this Congress, not a majority, but some who want to impeach Trump immediately. And, you know, so so to me, and as much as it was about that, well, she's not the only person who's expressed this view. And I would say, again, I think this also goes to this mode of analysis, like what is and isn't a gift to Trump. It's hard for me to imagine Maybe they're out there. And if they are, you know, please email us and let us know. But it is hard for me to imagine the person who was, you know, either an Obama to Trump voter or a member of the resistance who's been newly activated by this political moment, who is going to be, you know, well, I was ready to get on board with the Democrats, but then I heard this lady say motherfucker. It seems to me to be like a kind of beltway projection of what median voters are like, whereas I don't think I've ever met a person who I can imagine having those characteristics. I think that in as much as it's a huge gift to Trump, it's a huge gift to Trump because the media are giving it to Trump as a huge gift by making a big deal out of something that's really not a big deal. And so when she said it, to me, it was delightful. It was something that probably, you know, thrilled a lot of her constituents and the members of the resistance who got this class of women elected. It probably took some other people aback. My sense is just personally, David, that I swear a lot more than you do. <laughs> you don't you don't know what David's like after, you know, after hours, though. That's true. In terms of gender, I mean, Beto O'Rourke swore all the time on the campaign trail, and it was seen as a measure of his sort of hipster authenticity. You know, obviously, when Dick Cheney told Patrick Leahy on the floor of the Senate to go fuck himself, conservatives delighted in it. And Dick Cheney, you know, boasted about it as one of his finest moments. So I do think it is very obvious to me that there is a double standard with regard to to women cursing um, I think if you go back to some of the coverage of Trump's cursing and, again, how it was seen of a sign of his authenticity and his, um, you know, lack of political correctness, whereas but that wasn't an option available to Hillary Clinton. And even the rumors of her cursing 
would lead to this kind of like right wing coverage of her as hysterical and and unhinged. Ross, let's come back to 2020. Let's imagine the Democrats nominate a woman. How much of a disadvantage do you think a female nominee would be at just based on being a female nominee? I don't think you can analyze it just based on being a female nominee. I agree with Michelle that there is sexism in politics and then how people think about politicians. But alongside all of that, there's also the fact that gender dynamics are really complicated and female politicians have had a lot of success in a lot of different contexts in Western politics. And there are lots of ways, I think, for an effective female politician to sort of turn the discomfort that some men feel, the, the weird kind of attraction that men feel that Michelle mentioned earlier with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and that I think played in certain ways into the temporary rise of Sarah Palin in 2008. I think there are all kinds of ways for female politicians to sort of turn gender dynamics to their advantage. And the trick for, and the trick for a female politician is to figure out how to do that. And I think what you see with Ocasio-Cortez right now is an example of how that can totally work to a politician's advantage. And it's not hurting her. It's helping her that there exists this sort of weird, weird right-wing fevered response to her. It's raising her profile. It's enabling her to do all kinds of things that a boring left-wing male backbencher wouldn't be able to do. Politics thrives on archetypes, right? And we have fewer archetypes of what a effective female leader would look like than we do what an effective male leader would look like because most of the political leaders in Western history have been men. But what you're trying to do if you're Elizabeth Warren or Amy Klobuchar, you know, is to sort of figure out how to model an effective archetype in the way that Angela Merkel has been able to do in Germany, uh, in the way that Margaret Thatcher was able to do in England. And I think it's totally possible to do that. And the right female politician will be able to do it. Can I ask Ross a question, even though, I mean, I know, can you help me understand, you know, as a sort of like, you know, conservative interpreter, just what it is that make about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez that makes conservatives so bananas? Um, I mean, I think it's an it's an intersection, <laughs> if you will, of a lot of different things. It's the fact that she is an avowed socialist who sort of seems to embody this kind of millennial socialism that a lot of conservatives are afraid of and are worried is somehow the American future. It's that she's extremely media savvy and telegenic and good looking. Um, and then there's a sort of, I think, the more reasonable feeling that conservatives have, which is similar to what, you know, liberals feel about a certain kind of ideological and occasionally factually challenged conservative politician, which is like this sense of like, how is this young woman getting away with this when she's clearly inexperienced, naive and, you know, keeps stumbling over her facts and making sweeping generalizations and so on. So it's all it's all three of those things together. Well, Ross, I think there's a fourth, which is race. Right. I mean, a disproportionate share of the of the bogeymen and bogeywomen that the right pick are not white and she's not either. Don't you think that plays a role, too? It does. But I don't think it's the role that it would play. I mean, I think it's a radically different thing from like what Maxine, the role that race plays in how conservatives think about Maxine Waters or something. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, I think it's I think it's much more about sort of youth and sex appeal per se 
than it is about the fact that she's Latina. The Latina, you know, the Latina side of things is just sort of the extra, the extra intersection, if you will. But, you know, I mean, there's, look, there's, I mean, there's a model here, right? Like, I mean, again, we're talking about archetypes, right? Like, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is trying to be the, you know, Daenerys Targaryen of millennial <laughs> socialism, right? She's trying to be, you know, the the young, attractive, dynamic queen, the the empress, basically, of the future, you know, socialist North American I'm Union. Not, I am going to have to and, push and, back and on that. And she's good at it. I am going to have to push back on that. I think that her... First of all, I don't think that she she didn't really ask to become a media phenomenon. She's obviously good at it, and she'd be crazy not to take advantage of it. But she's not kind of lording it over people, right? I mean, she, you know, she's like, in a lot of ways, a good soldier, voted for Nancy Pelosi, is, you know, trying to push the caucus to the left. I see no signs that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is trying to build some sort of independent power base through which she can rule us all. I mean, I, I think I think her social media presence as Donald Trump amply demonstrated for Republicans is itself an independent power base. And I think she would be a fool not to build one. And just to I mean, to to pick. So Sarah Palin, right? If Sarah Palin had been a little bit better at policy. All right. A lot better at policy. <laughs> if Sarah Palin could name two publications of any sort. Right. She would have been an incredibly effective conservative politician. And I am envious of socialism that it has in Ocasio-Cortez. And I think she's incredibly impressive. And I just wish she were, you know, pro-life. <laughs> So she is not running for president in 2020. So let's let's finish by talking about 2020 for a couple minutes. Ross, both Michelle and I are really worried about this likability sexism issue, right? And and I think we really have seen it with Elizabeth Warren. Do you think that the Democratic female presidential possibilities, Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, Amy Klobuchar, and so on, do you think any of them can actually use gender to their advantage the way that you've seen Ocasio-Cortez do? Not in the same way. But yeah, I think in a campaign against Trump, Trump is a misogynist. And there are lots of not only female voters, but male voters who are turned off by frank misogyny. And I think the challenge for a female Democratic nominee would be to bait Trump into overt acts of misogyny while finding ways to essentially reassure sort of semi-sexist voters. And that's not the easiest thing to do. But Trump is a great foil potentially for a kind of sensible-seeming female candidate in certain ways, um, which is why the sort of Midwestern Klobuchar-type figure seems to me like a pretty good bet for Democrats to make. With Warren, you just have a lot of other things in the air besides sex. It's it's very normal for Democrats from Massachusetts who run for president to run into problems, right? It, you know, it, it's very normal for Democrats associated with Harvard University who run for president to run into problems. But the idea that that's the idea that that's her identity. When I mean, she has this like extremely interesting, you know, kind of working class story as you know a single mother who came from Oklahoma, who really struggled to get through college, who, you know, really 
really knows what it's like to be in sort of like desperate straits raising a family. I mean, she's not faking it. There are very few people who have sort of more like white working class bona fides than Elizabeth Warren. Absolutely. I think there's a version and I think there's a version of the Warren candidacy that would be really effective. The trick is how do you get that candidacy out from under the weight of the Native American controversies and the fact that she has this Massachusetts Harvard brand? And Michelle, what about the candidates other than Warren? I mean, do you think Klobuchar or Harris or or the other women in the race can potentially use gender to their advantage? Well, I think that the way that they could use gender to their advantage is that there is a huge constituency of women who were devastated by the 2016 election, who are more committed than ever to seeing a woman president. You know, the women who've led the resistance, who've put all of these women in office. And one of the problems that Hillary Clinton had was that a lot of women were just complacent, right? They didn't think that, I hear this over and over again, women who feel like a lot of shame and guilt, that they weren't out knocking on doors, that they weren't out doing everything that they possibly could to get her elected. And I think whoever the candidate is, but particularly if it's a woman candidate, they're just not going to have that problem. Kirsten Gillibrand is somebody who has done a huge amount to build networks of female candidates and female politicians all over the country. And so, you know, if she if her candidacy takes off, I think it will be because of, you know, sort of resistance women, you know, and then there would also just be something so incredibly sweet and redemptive about seeing a woman be the one to finally remove Donald Trump from our lives. Yes, there would. I'm going to end with a little bit of a plea to any of our fellow members of the media who are listening, which is I do still think there are parts of America that are panicked by the idea of female leaders, unfortunately. And I think, uh, Michelle, you made this point already today, but I think a fair amount of media coverage unthinkingly plays into that sexism and certainly did in 2016. And I hope heading into a campaign where we may have Donald Trump running against a woman, the media heading into the campaign will be a little bit more reflective about how sexism seeps into the whole national conversation about politics than the media. We in the media were in 2016. Now it's time for our weekly recommendation. Each week we give you a recommendation meant to take your mind off of politics. Michelle, it's your turn this week. What do you have for us? I don't know about you guys, but one of the casualties of this moment in politics is that I'm reading a lot less fiction because I just feel like I'm constantly trying to contend with so many other kinds of information. And then I go on vacation and I like binge on novels. And, you know, so I was recently on vacation I read, I actually took one of Ross's suggestions and read a Tanya French novel. I read um, Celeste Ng's Little Fires Everywhere, which was great. And then I read a David Mitchell book that I had somehow skipped over at the time, which I'm not even sure how that happened because I love David Mitchell and I was in the bookstore and I was looking at this book and thinking, how did I even miss this book coming out? Then I realized that, you know, it came out in 2014, which is the year I had the, a baby. And then the next year I was covering the primaries. And then, you know, since then, we've all been on a roller coaster through hell. And 
so this this novel, um, The Bone Clocks, but it's not the only, I mean, there are a lot of David Mitchell novels that I would recommend, but they are just so absorbing and so sort of like pyrotechnically skillful in the different like milieus and different extremely complicated interlocking plots, but none, but also these characters that are drawn with so much grace and sort of sympathy. And then one final thing is that there is, you know, we're in this sort of like cramped nationalist moment and his books are this vision of global interconnectivity that I really love. Do you like Cloud Atlas? I love Cloud Atlas. Yeah, I, I like Cloud Atlas better. I didn't love The Bone Clocks. I felt like it had a fabulous premise. I loved the first half. And then once you got to sort of the supernatural battle royale, I, I was a little less interested. But then I read Slade House, which is the sort of novella about the same universe of basically vampiric people who decant, right? They decant. <laughs> yeah the souls of gifted children in order to achieve immortality. And it is just incredibly creepy, claustrophobic. <gasps> so and, I haven't read and, that. And okay, so that's what I'll read next. I will not pretend to have read David Mitchell, but you two are both making me realize I should, in fact, spend more time reading novels and less time <laughs> reading journalism and, to be honest, watching football. Well, it's almost time for a Super Bowl recommendation, David, so you can save one up. I will happily claim the Super Bowl-related recommendation. That's our show this week. Thank you for listening. Leave us a voicemail at 347-915-4324. That's 347-915-4324. And we might play you on the show. You can also email us with thoughts, ideas for segments, criticisms, you name it, at argument at nytimes.com. Thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, please leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts. This week's show was produced by Caitlin Pierce for Transmitter Media with help from Lacey Roberts. Our executive producer is Greta Cohn. We had help from Tyson Evans, Phoebe Lett, and Ian Prasad Philbrick. Our theme was composed by Allison Leighton Brown. Special thanks to Kaiser Health News for use of its studio. You should listen to its podcast, What the Health. Whether the government's open or not next week, we will be here. See you next week. I was so disappointed when I moved to New York City and realized that people here watched football because I sort of thought that that was just like an artifact of my horrible childhood in Buffalo. <laughs> Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.